All right. Well, good morning again. I uh, hope you guys are all doing well. Uh, yeah, as Pastor Donna said, uh, these are confusing times. I like felt a little bit tired on my run yesterday. So I went home and took a COVID test just to be safe. It's like, I don't know, maybe it's my lungs, maybe something's wrong. Uh, I was negative, but we know that you guys are all kind of struggling to figure out your own way uh, to manage. So for those of you who are here, thanks for being here. Uh, please laugh extra loud at my bad jokes. For those of you who are just like that, that was good. I, I appreciate that. Uh, for those of you who are at home, uh, we understand and we miss you. We can't wait uh, to all be together again. Uh, well, a few months ago, uh, something kind of strange and troubling happened, happened to me while I was at work, while I was right here at church, back here in my office. I came in on a Tuesday morning. I sat down at my desk, opened up my computer. And at some point, I opened up my desk drawer to get something out, and this is what I saw. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I freaked out. I hate cockroaches, so I jumped back. I let out really, ah! And uh, I, I had a little moment of panic. Uh, I, I looked a little closer. I was kind of gearing up to like chase this cockroach throughout my desk drawer. But kind of looked at it. The coloring seemed kind of weird. And as I got closer, I realized that it was a fake cockroach. So now I was freaked out for a different reason. And I was trying to figure out who did this. Who would put a fake cockroach in my drawer, and why? Well, a couple weeks later, I came to work, and I opened my drawer, and there was another one in my drawer right there waiting for me. I knew it wasn't an accident. And then, a few months later, I came to work. This was just a couple weeks ago now. I went to go next door to get something out of the fridge. I opened the fridge, and here's what I saw in the refrigerator. So now, we have a full-on infestation of fake plastic cockroaches, not just in the sanctuary, not just in my office, it's over in the CE building. And you know, I'm gonna be honest, I, I still have no idea who did this. No idea, I, I, I kinda asked around, I got a little bit of intel, intel. I accused some college kids, I accused a 14-year-old girl, but no one <laughs> fessed up to me, or they all said that they didn't do it, no one would lie to their pastor, so, the main reason I'm telling you this story is if you know anything, <laughs> please tell me. If you don't feel comfortable telling me personally, there's an offering box back there. You can leave me a note. No questions asked. But, you know, this was obviously just a minor incident. It was a fake bug infestation. It was a little bit confusing, but I was mostly super amused by it. It's providing me a lot of entertainment. But in today's passage, we are going to look at a legitimate, serious, horrible bug infestation. Something that was truly worthy of panic and confusion and freaking out. A plague, a swarm of locusts that wreaks havoc on Israel. Uh, we're continuing this vision series, uh, our look at the apocalyptic visions of Scripture. And what we've been talking about is this idea that there is an unseen divine reality. That behind what we can see in our world, there is truth that God wants us to understand. And that he reveals to us in his word, often through these strange and mysterious visions. And this morning, we're going to look at a vision of God's judgment. 
of Israel experiencing the destruction and devastation of this unprecedented plague of locusts. And this plague brought more than just confusion and panic. It brought pain. It brought suffering and hardship for God's people. And a vision like this begs some important questions about judgment, about hardship, about God's character. And it invites us to consider the reality of judgment in light of what we talked about just last week, that God is on the throne, that at all times and all seasons, he is good and powerful and in control. How do we reconcile that with what we see in the world around us? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joel. Now, Joel is kind of a tricky book, and this is a difficult passage. So before we dive into the vision, I want to kind of make sure we understand what we're going to be reading. Uh, And part of the difficulty of this book is that we don't know exactly when Joel wrote it. We don't know what time period this prophecy was given. So we don't know if it was before the exile or after the exile. It's a difference of hundreds of years. We don't know if Joel is warning about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, or if he's returned home from exile and now he's helping the people to rebuild the city. What we do know, however, what's clear from the text is that Joel is living at a time when Israel still hasn't figured out this call to holy living, this call to faithfulness. They're still struggling to keep the covenant. They're still living in sin. And so Joel gives them this vision of judgment, a vision that shows them God's response to this kind of sin and unfaithfulness. And what we'll look at is that there's really kind of two parts of this vision. In chapter 1, we'll see Joel describe what was likely an actual historical plague, something that actually happened in Israel's history, and likely something that the people at this time would have remembered. This would have been a life-changing, horrible event. And Joel is interpreting this plague as an act of judgment. He sees this as a consequence of Israel's continued sin. So that's chapter 1. But then in chapter 2, the timeline shifts. He's no longer talking about something that happened in the past. He's pointing ahead to something that will take place in the future, an apocalyptic vision of future judgment. And so he takes the imagery of this real-life locust plague and kind of mixes it with the imagery of an army. And he says, this is what this future coming judgment will look like. This is how God is going to respond to sin at the end of all things. Now here's why this matters for us. Even though Joel is talking about two specific events, one in our very distant past and one in our future, he's also revealing a larger reality about judgment in general, about the nature of sin and how God responds to it. And so as we read today, we can ask some larger questions. How do we understand God's purpose in judgment? And as people living in a deeply sinful world, what does this mean for our lives? In other words, what does God want us to perceive 
about judgment? What unseen reality does he want to show us? And how do we participate? How do we live in line with this truth that he reveals? So let's go ahead and jump into our vision. We're not going to read all of Joel 1 and 2, but we'll read kind of the main sections that show us the imagery of this judgment. So beginning in Joel 1 verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine, Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers, grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. Skipping ahead to the beginning of chapter 2. This is now the future vision. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, is like the, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. So obviously there's a lot happening here, but the focus of these visions, of both chapter 1 and 2, is the devastating effect of these two uh, locust invasions. And I do think it's kind of hard for us to fully appreciate just how horrific this experience would have been. We may understand the concept of a locust invasion, but I don't know that we necessarily feel the emotion that Joel's readers would have felt thinking about this kind of destruction. Uh, so really quickly, before we continue, we're going to watch a short clip from the nature series Planet Earth. Now, I love these series. I remember watching this uh, with Alyssa several years ago. And I remember that this, this clip on, or this, this scene of locusts came on, and I thought to myself, someday I'm going to use this, this scene in a message on Joel 1 and 2. 
So this is like one of my bucket list preacher items. So we're going to go ahead and watch that just to get a sense of how gross and destructive this would have been. There is no other species on the planet that responds as quickly and as dramatically to the good times as the desert locust. Eggs that have remained in the ground for 20 years begin to hatch. The young locusts are known as hoppers, for at this stage they're flightless. They find new feeding grounds by following the smell of sprouting grass. Normally, it takes four weeks for hoppers to become adults. But when the conditions are right, as now, their development switches to the fast track. As the vegetation in one place begins to run out, the winged adults release pheromones, scent messages, which tell others in the group that they must move on. And when groups merge, they form a swarm. locust eats its entire body weight every day and a whole swarm can consume literally hundreds of tons of vegetation. They have to keep on moving. The swarm travels with the wind. It's the most energy-saving way of flying. Following the flow of wind means that they're always heading toward areas of low pressure places where wind meets rain and vegetation starts to grow. As they fly, swarms join up with other swarms to form gigantic plagues several billion strong and as much as 40 miles wide. They will consume every edible thing that lies in their path. This is one of planet Earth's greatest spectacles. It's rarely seen on this scale, and it won't last long. Once the food has gone, the steady roar of a billion beating locust wings will once again be replaced by nothing more than the sound of the desert wind. Mm. Just imagine finding one of those in your desk drawer. Oh, that's billions. I think this gives us at least a little bit of a better sense of how terrifying and overwhelming this invasion would have been. But what Joel really emphasizes is uh, what he wants us to understand is just how unbelievably 
destructive it was. Almost all the imagery that he uses, uses points out the kind of devastation that this plague causes. He says that the locusts are like a mighty army, too numerous to count, that they have teeth like lions. He describes the fig trees being left stripped and white and barren. He describes every kind of tree being withered and destroyed. And he tells us about how this invasion has caused daily life to just break down. He says that the people's source of food has been eaten up. Uh, even the, the new wine, which is a powerful image for joy and celebration, has been uh, destroyed, been taken away. Even the ability to worship has been interrupted because of the lack of grain and oil for making sacrifices. So the question is, what does God want us to perceive about this locust invasion? What does he want us to understand in a larger sense about judgment? In verse 5, Joel says, wake up. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Now, it's not as if he's mad specifically about people drinking too much. Uh, the wine has a different imagery here. But he's kind of saying that Israel is like a whole nation of drunkards, that they're in this stupor, unable to fully grasp what's going on. And he says, wake up, look at what is going on around you. Look at how bad things are. And Joel is calling on Israel to look at the effects of the plague. But more than that, he's calling on them to look at, to understand, to see the deeper cause of these locusts. To consider the reality of this plague as judgment for their sinfulness, for their unfaithfulness. He wants them to see that this destruction is not just some random act of nature. This is God's response to Israel's sin. But more than that, more than just seeing it as an act of judgment, he wants them to look around and understand that the devastation they see, all of this destruction, is a direct result of their sin. He wants them to understand what sin does to their lives and to the world around them. To put it simply, God wants us to perceive the devastating effects of sin. God wants us to wake up to how destructive can be in our lives and in our world. God wants Israel to understand that while he is sovereign over this judgment, while he is in control of what's happening, the real root of this destruction is their sin. So we have to kind of understand what God is and isn't saying here. God isn't saying that I got mad at you for sinning, so I conjured up a bunch of locusts, I, I brought them up from the ground, and I blew them your way, and I commanded them to eat all your crops because I was mad at you and I wanted you to feel bad. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what God is saying is that he is allowing Israel to experience the effects of their sin on this world. That he is allowing sin to come full circle in the form of this locust plague. And to understand this, we need to go back to the prophet Isaiah because Joel is drawing on a different prophecy, a different vision of judgment and destruction. 
He knows his readers would have been familiar with this. So let's look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 24, beginning in verse 4. He paints this picture, this vision. He says, The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The joyful timbrels are, are stilled. The noise of the revelers has stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house is barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All the joyful sounds are banished from the earth. Same kind of language. Same kind of imagery. And Isaiah 24 is called a mini-apocalypse. It's not like a full-blown vision. It's kind of halfway there. But what we see here is this picture of sin's true consequences. Sin doesn't just affect our personal lives. It doesn't just affect our relationship with God. It doesn't just affect our relationship with other people. It affects the entire physical world. Isaiah says that the earth is defiled by its people and their disobedience. He says because they've broken the covenant, the earth now experiences a curse. He envisions these vines withering, harvest suffering, all because of people's sin. And this is an interesting idea, and it fits perfectly with what we see in Genesis 3, with the first sin. God says that the ground was cursed because of Adam and Eve's sin, that it produced thorn and thistles, that it would be harder to cultivate. The Bible tells us that there is a relationship between our sin and the condition of the world around us. More specifically, that we are making the earth sick. Now, when you think about this idea, I think we can understand this probably better than any group of people in history. Because whatever your position on environmental issues is, we can definitely see the impact of our sinfulness in the world around us, in the physical world. Think about things like smog and pollution and global warming. Just go for a hike on our local mountains on a normal day, get to a certain elevation, look out at the world around you, and I think you would agree that the earth is defiled. You see this, this thick covering of brown as far as the eye can see. The world looks sick. But Isaiah here, he's talking about more than just physical pollution. That's one aspect of things, but it's much deeper than that. He's talking about the way that violence and greed and immorality have taken a toll on the spiritual condition of the world around us. That even things like natural disasters are a reflection of the way that sin has brought brokenness and evil 
into the entire natural order, has taken something that God said is good, that God said is perfect in its design, and it threw a wrench into all of it. And now things are distorted. And so Joel is taking this idea from Isaiah and from Genesis, and he's applying it to his vision. He's applying it to this locust event. And he's saying, you see that thing that happened in your past? This horrible vision of destruction, of these locusts coming in and destroying everything. He's saying that's happening as a result of sin. This is a vision, a perfect picture of just how devastating sin is for our world and our lives. Uh, there's a famous anti-drug commercial that uh, was popular in the 80s. I barely remember that because I was very young in the 80s, but I was alive. Some of you remember this really well. But there's a guy holding an egg, and he looks at the camera, and he says, this is your brain. And then he takes the egg, he cracks it open, he drops it in a skillet, and it starts to sizzle and cook. And then what does he say? This is your brain on drugs. Now, I don't know how effective that commercial is, was, but, you know, the point was clear. It was a visual illustration for the serious effects of drug use. Now, Joel is making a similar point, but with a much more powerful visual. He says, hey, this is your world. Eden-like place, crops growing, wine flowing. But then he shows this locust invasion, this devastating, ruinous place. And he says, this is your world in sin. This is the consequence of turning away from God. And this really is, I think, one of the most prominent themes about judgment in Scripture that I think we miss a lot. That so much of the brokenness and pain we see in the world isn't God actively punishing us. Not him bringing evil and pain into the world so that we feel bad. He doesn't throw lightning bolts or sit around thinking about all the bad things that he can do to us. There are some instances of him taking an active role in judgment, but those are far less common. Instead, more often what we see is God simply allowing sin to take its effect. And oftentimes the greatest, most painful judgment we can experience is simply being allowed to feel the true weight of sinfulness. We see this vividly in Revelation 6. And if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, a lot of this book, almost most of it, is really about this sequence of judgments. If you've ever read it before, you have the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, and it's mostly about judgment. And in Revelation 6, this judgment begins with this strange passage about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you've probably heard that phrase before, and you might have wondered, who are these Horsemen, who are these dudes? Is this like a literal four guys on horses? But really what we see here is this same idea from Joel and Isaiah. It's judgment in the form of human sin coming back 
full circle and us experiencing that. Let me just read that passage really quickly so you can get a feel for this. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. Notice, God is still sovereign. God is in control. God allows this to happen. Verse 2, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. So you have four horses and four riders. Each is allowed to come by God's sovereign hand, but each kind of shows us this picture of human sin coming full circle. Horse one, you have man's desire for conquest and war. This desire to take power, this lust for more. Horse two, that leads to violence, killing, more war. Horse three, famine arises as a natural consequence of this war, this violence. And finally, horse four, death, a result of all of these sins. This is the world in sin. The natural consequence of sin is always destruction. This is the path sin always takes. Whether it's on a small scale, in our lives, things like relationships, emotional pain, struggles, or felt on a huge cosmic scale, big, huge events, things like a pandemic. Sin invades what is good, and it breaks things down. And this really is at the heart of the message of Joel and all the prophets. God is calling us to open our eyes to see this reality, to wake up and understand how destructive sin is. And this helps us to understand why God hates sin so much. It's not just because it's breaking the rules. God doesn't call us to obey because he's some control freak. God calls calls us to choose sin, to choose faithfulness, to choose holiness, to choose him over sin because he knows the true nature of sin. He knows this reality. That sin is a plague on the world, and it's an evil force that only destroys, that only ever leads to this kind of destruction. 
So the question is, how do we participate? What do we do? How do we respond when we wake up and see that sin is this destructive? And before I answer those questions, we need to first answer another one. And that's, why does God allow this? If sin is so destructive, why doesn't God just stop it? If God is sovereign over everything, all-powerful on the throne, why not just make the consequences go away and make everything better? Stop the locust horde, prevent the invading armies, restore the crops, fill the casks of wine. Now, just to be clear, he's going to. And we're going to get to that as we continue in this apocalyptic story. And that's really the point of the entire biblical story, how God is working to do this. But why not right away? Why not do that right now? Why not end the pandemic? Why not take away all sickness? Why not make it so that there's no war and everyone always has enough to eat? Why not make it so that our relationships are good, that nothing bad ever happens to good people? Why not do that? And again, the answer is not that God enjoys our suffering, that God wants us to feel bad. The Bible tells us that the opposite is true, that God does not delight in our suffering, that he's patient, that he holds off judgment as long as he can. But the hard reality is that judgment is often necessary because it is the only thing that will wake us up. Oftentimes we need to experience judgment to recognize our brokenness, to recognize the true nature of sin, and to recognize our great need for God. See, we need to feel the weight of sin so that we recognize what Adam and Eve did, so that we recognize what Israel didn't, so that we recognize the things that people have missed throughout history. That when we do things our own way, when we try to live a life apart from God, when we try to live by our own wisdom, by what we think is best, when we turn away from God's plan and we turn towards anything else, it never turns out well. It always leads to that kind of destruction and ugliness we saw in Joel 1 and 2. There's no version where we do things our own way and everything turns out great. Where we can create our own little Eden for ourselves and just be happy forever. We need to be reminded that we make a mess of things when we do life without God. And not only that, we need to see that when we chase after things that aren't God, we end up in trouble too. These visions of judgment remind us how fleeting the things that we think are important are. That so many things that seem good, that seem like they'll fix all of our problems, that seem like they'll make everything better, ultimately spoil, rot, and fade. And that the only real hope we have isn't in stuff, but it's in God's restorative power. And so as much as the effects of judgment in our world are so Difficult. I don't want to make light of the fact that many of us have experienced hardship. Many of us are experiencing hardship. That life can be cruel and we don't like it. It's horrible. It sucks to experience judgment. And that is a reality. 
but ultimately it reminds us that there is no hope outside of God in his reign coming in full. It's judgment that leads us to look for real hope. To search, to seek out, to long for real grace and mercy. And to not be satisfied with the condition of our world. So how do we participate? The prophet gives us two responses to consider. First, God invites us to mourn. In verse 13, Joel says, Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. The true response to sin is to feel a genuine sense of sorrow for our world, for people who are hurting. Too often we look at the brokenness around us and we want to blame. We want to blame God. But this just leads us to bitterness and resentment. Sometimes we want to blame people that just makes us judgmental. We think those people, those sinful people, they're causing all of the problems in our world. Sometimes we just want to blame ourselves and we sit around feeling like everything bad that happens is my fault. I deserve this. God doesn't want us to do any of those things. Instead, he wants us to feel a sense of mourning, to stop, to pray, and feel sorrow over our world and over sin. Because ultimately, mourning is productive. Mourning produces in us the response that God wants from our hearts. For one thing, mourning leads us to justice. Mourning produces in us a holy discontent. It makes us want to make things better. When we mourn the reality of sin, it inspires us to stand against the destructiveness of sin and try to be a force for good and love and hope for the people who are experiencing the weight of sin. But more important, mourning leads us to the most important response. God wants us to participate in this truth through genuine repentance. To simply turn away from sin Turn away from this pathway to destruction. Turn away from this brokenness and simply turn towards God and the hope we have in him. Joel 2.12 says, Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. In the midst of the brokenness of our world, the ongoing judgment that God says is only going to get worse, we have to recognize that we need his grace, his compassion, and his reign over our lives. See, the more we recognize sin for what it is, the more we're going to turn to the only thing that's good. The more we see how broken the world is and how broken a life of sin is, the more we will genuinely want God and the life he has for us. And so this is what God is inviting us to at all times. Whether we are experiencing good or we are experiencing hardship.
to turn our hearts towards him, to change our desires, to see that he alone is good, that he alone will last, that he is our only hope. Let's pray.